0: um that's a sermon illustration for another time um but uh yeah appreciate your prayers in that we're in the final countdown seven days so technically any uh we're in the last week of a series called go therefore it's based upon evangelism and our desire um to reach people for for jesus and the kind of the, the thesis if you will of of the series has been this The gospel reaches everyone in a different way because everyone's different. For some of you, uh, the issue or the gospel barrier might have been anger or hate, and and for some people it might be be shame, or some people it might be some type of intellectual wrestling. And so what we see in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is Jesus using his message in the gospel to address people in different ways. Some of you are here and could say that, man— The gospel, it took away my hate, took away my anger. And for some of you, you you can say, I finally learned to forgive myself because of the gospel. For some of you, it it's I changed my life. I finally became the father I, I should have been all along because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the gospel interacts with us in different ways. And we've been looking about how Jesus presents the gospel to different sorts of people. Today, uh, we're going to continue in that, looking at one last story and also sharing one last story, one last testimony, which we've been doing. So it's not just stories from the Bible, but it's stories from the church about how the gospel has changed lives. Today, we're looking at Paul the Apostle as he's in a place called Athens. And we're going to look at, he presents the gospel to a group of, we'll call them like the intellectual elite, a school of philosophers. Um, You might kind of, it might be unfair to categorize them as this, but there were certainly some there that were like this, you know, like intellectual snobs that are like, you know, well, I'm highly educated, therefore I know everything about everything. Even though my degree's in biology, I know more about reality than you do, type type of thing. Um, And they're, they're philosophers, they're thinkers, They are at the top, and the culture there values it. Brief kind of note, though, don't think in any way that this is saying, that I'm saying our Christianity is anti-intellectual or anti-education. That's not the case. It's just saying that oftentimes, lots of education can blind us to exploring new ideas because we think we have the the world figured out. So 2,000 years ago, Paul is in Athens, Acts 17 says this now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there now Paul it says he sees all the idols in Athens and he's provoked in his spirit and that's what I hope is happening to us as we go through this series as we look at people who, who do not know Jesus, who haven't discovered the Jesus that we know, are we provoked in the spirit, saying like, I can't, I can't handle this. Paul's saying, look, at, no one knows Jesus here. How can we reach these people? Paul's provoked, are you? And he does three things. He reasons with people in the synagogue, the devout people, and people in the marketplace. Those are three sort of categories of people. To to the synagogue, it's mostly Jews, people who are like Paul, Jewish. He reasons with the scriptures from them. The devout people are probably like Gentiles, non-Jews who respect the Jewish faith and are interested in it. And then the people in the marketplace are kind of like the everyday normal pagans. And what I mean by pagans is the majority of that culture believed in multiple gods. They were polytheists, so Apollo, Zeus, Athena, all of those gods. Now what does Paul do? He reasons with them. Paul has disagreements, major disagreements, but he reasons with them. This is um, a dying art in our culture. Reasonable, civil discourse. Some of you in the older generations, you remembered when this occurred. You could look back at the good old days. I mean, our culture is losing the ability to do this. Christians, must master this. We have to to be reasonable but gentle, gracious, loving and kind and truth-telling with our words. Reasonable discourse. So Paul's doing this, and it says this in verse 18. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. A few kind of historical notes. First, what's up with the Epicureans and the Stoics? They're the ones who are kind of like challenging Paul. They want to hear more. They've called them a babbler. Who are they? Epicureans were a group, and this is an oversimplification. We're ever gonna try to define like in 30 seconds a massive philosophical movement or school. You're not gonna get everything right, but succinctly said, Epicureans believed in the existence of the gods, but they believed that those gods were far off, distant, and detached, and they didn't have real interactions with you in your everyday life. So the best thing you could do is not shoot for the stars or just be lazy, but try to live a normal, average life, keep your head down, do good, and live live in that happy kind of center content point. But make no mistake about it, the gods are distant, detached, and they don't care. So just live your life, be happy, good to go. Now some at this point would call this an ancient philosophy. But this is actually the default position of the average American the average American is an Epicurean. Average American believes that God, yes, he probably exists, but he's far off detached and he's not concerned. Therefore, I don't have to have any behavioral change or live my life differently in the belief of the existence of this God. And I'm just gonna try to live a good kind of average kind of life and make it as tolerable as possible. When Americans are polled, we still, on the majority, believe in the existence of God but we believe his existence doesn't have any bearing on our behavior. And so we live as if God is far off, distant, and not concerned, and we just live life as we want it. We're Epicureans. Second, the Stoics. It's a little bit more familiar because the word stoic. The Stoics um, were people who didn't want to respond with any great highs or lows to anything, whether it was joy or depression. Depression. Hence, no matter it's good, bad, happy, sad, your face should be stoic. You're not gonna respond to the extremes of life. They have an issue though because they believe that all of, all of existence is of the same substance. There's only one thing in the universe. God is all and all is God. They call this kind of God the Logos, the Logos. And that is the substance which permeates all of reality. So, tree, stone, human being, God, divine, it doesn't matter, everything is the same. We call that today sort of pantheism. All is God, God is all. And so these Epicureans and Stoics, they converse with Paul. And they call him a babbler. The word babbler, spermologos here. It, it, comes from a metaphor, it comes from an image of birds that are like pecking on the ground, looking for seeds, eating some and dropping others and scattering seeds. And the idea is that Paul is just kind of like a babbler. He's a bird picking up some seed here, dropping it here. Um, it began to be used of like an ancient form of plagiarism. It was like, um, you know, the guy doesn't have any original thoughts. He just takes some stuff from here, stuff from here, mixes it up, throws it around and presents it as if it's, it's new. There's one scholar who, who says this word should be translated like third-rate journalist. So it's like, Paul, he's a babbler, this insult. Others, it says, say he's a preacher of foreign divinities, divinities, deities, other gods. Now here's a question. Is Paul preaching foreign gods? It's a little trick question. Because in a sense, he's preaching something foreign. Um, In those times, you had a big, giant list of gods, and you didn't want other gods from other cultures to just easily come in you'd allow him in but you kind of watch out for him so in a sense jesus is but he's not preaching foreign gods he's not talking about multiple gods but many people are assuming he's preaching foreign gods in the plural have you ever ha- overheard someone saying what like christian what they what they believe christians believe and you go like well you don't believe that ever been there where someone's talking like hey i know you i know you're a christian and you think this like no i don't think that that's weird who told you that it's like have you ever talked to one of the christians i'm one you are and you get this conversation going people don't really know what christians actually claim and so they believe something false and you have to clarify this was going on with paul they think he's preaching foreign deities there's a chance they think he's preaching two gods right here one named Jesus and one named Anastasis Anastasius is where we get our word Anastasia but Anastasius is the word for resurrection and oftentimes deities they they rolled with two so there was like a main god and his consort or his wife so the people in this circle might be thinking Paul is preaching foreign divinities namely Jesus Iesu and Anastasis Anastasia resurrection this male and female God. Whatever the case is, they're mistaken, and Paul needs to clarify. And they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. The Areopagus um, is a place where philosophers would talk and discuss things. Uh, And if you've heard this passage taught before, you've heard that discussed, but it's more than just like a a place where philosophers get together to chat. See, Athens is a free city at this point. And that, what that means is that the Roman Empire controls, controls Athens, but they realize the, the Athenian people aren't too crazy, and they're gonna let them self-govern, they can be a free city. Athenians are pretty kicked back; they're mellow, they just like to philosophize. You go ahead and run your city, we won't interfere too much. Them Spartans, they're a little war-hungry, we have gotta watch them a little bit more. But you guys govern yourself the kind of supreme court of Athens was the council of philosophers that met at the Areopagus. So they're trying to bring in Paul to present, yes, to the philosophers at the Areopagus, but in a sense, you're also presenting before the supreme court of the day, and it could get you in trouble. They say, this man's preaching foreign deities. We don't know about that. Some say he's a babbler, some say some there may be treason involved, others say this, but we need to hear him out. So Paul goes to present before the Supreme Court that is filled with the, the intellectual elite, the philosophers of the day. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Three things about the people of Athens. One, it's a culture submersed in idolatry. Everywhere you'd look, there'd be temples and altars and inscriptions written to gods. Two, they value like high philosophical knowledge. This would be like a culture that looks at the people with like multiple PhDs in, in different schools of philosophy. That Man, that person knows what they're talking about. And those are the people to respect. They value that. And then third, they like new ideas, like talking about new. If it's new, it's better. So it's a culture submersed in idolatry, a culture that values high kind of intellectual credibility, and three, they're crazy about new things. Does this sound familiar? So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. That's good. Like, that's good. So there's all these altars and temples and and inscriptions, and then Paul sees the one inscription that's like, to the unknown God. And Paul goes, oh, I want to talk to you about that one today. Now, we don't know what certainty, but most likely that inscription was made because there was a famine in the area a while back, and everyone is sacrificing to the traditional gods. Sacrifice to Apollo, sacrifice to Athena, and the famine doesn't end. And then somebody goes, what if there's like a god that we don't know about? Let's sacrifice to that one, and then maybe the famine will end. And maybe, most likely, they sacrificed, and something happened, and they're like, give, give that man an altar, give him an inscription. well what who what's name do we put on it don't know just put to the unknown god so paul says i see that you've left a window open yes you believe in all these other gods and all your other doors are closed and and your windows are locked but you've left one window open to your house for maybe this unknown god to come into your life i want to talk to you about this unknown god now another interesting thing about the areopagus The Areopagus has a rich historical and mythological foundation. The Areopagus in kind of the Athenian mythology of the day was the place where justice was served or where righteousness was served. This was the place that wrongs were made right. So in the origin stories, the kind of mythological tales of the Areopagus, there's plays and poets that speak of what is to occur there. And there's a play Um, called Eumenides, and it's about a guy named Orestes, and Orestes is on trial at the Areopagus in the mythological tale for killing his mother. This is a a great Mother's Day illustration, (laughs) but he was told to kill mom because mom killed dad. Now, I know some of you, you, you know, on Mother's Day, you keep your mouth closed because you know, you want to be honoring to mother and stuff, but you know, you got family drama. You know, at the barbecue, you just the second someone goes by, you're ready to, yeah, you know, we just don't like her. She's, you know, she's, and just Mother's Day slander fest in some families. A word of encouragement, no matter how bad your family tensions might be, mom didn't kill dad and you didn't kill mom yet. So on the curve, you're, not, you're doing okay. You're doing okay. Be encouraged. It's not, it's, not, it's not rock bottom. Orestes is on trial, and the great god Apollo comes and says, yes, he's guilty, but he was ordered to kill this woman by order of the gods. And he says, you have to get this verdict right because if you find him guilty of murder and you kill him, that'll be the greatest mistake you can make. Why? Because the great god Apollo says this. When a man dies and spills his blood to the dust. There is no resurrection. The great God Apollo at the Areopagus says, someone coming back from the dead is impossible. Do you get that? That's not just a normal man. Apollo says resurrection is impossible. And it's at that very location that Paul will give a defense for Jesus and the resurrection. He says, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Oftentimes people will kind of say, this is where Paul is, you know, he's building bridges and and making connections. And that's true, that's absolutely right. But Paul isn't just building bridges to make connections to sort of pretend like it's all good. Paul is trying to get in through the window and then subvert their thinking. And I say that because oftentimes passages like this in the Bible will be used to say something along the lines of this. As Christians, we need to to build as many bridges and make as many connections as possible and just talk about the things we agree on with other religions. And the stuff we disagree on, why not focus on those? Let's talk about what we agree on. And then there's this idea that we could all kind of go around the campfire, roast marshmallows, sing Kumbaya, and pretend like we're all worshiping the same God. And we're not. There's commonality, and there's bridges, and there's connection and you graciously talk about agreement, and you graciously talk about disagreement. And this is what Paul does. He goes, I want to talk to you about the unknown one. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul says, God doesn't live in a temple this is profound, because he just made a connection, a bridge, the unknown God, okay, we're on the same page, gods don't live in temples, made by man, human hands don't please God, now you have to understand, if you were standing at the Areopagus, and you were to do a 360 turn, everywhere you would look, there would be signs of gods living in temples, everywhere, everywhere, if anyone, has anyone been to Athens today? What do you see today in Athens? What's the most prominent thing if you were standing at the Areopagus? Do you remember what you see? The Acropolis and the Pantheon. It's over 2,000 years old. That's how great of an architectural achievement it was. So essentially, Paul is saying, we have some common ground, but the greatest architectural and artistic achievements of your culture are mistaken. And not only for Athens, Some of these buildings are the greatest architectural achievements of humanity at this point. And Paul says, you've got it wrong. That's not how these things work. You got it wrong. That's the Pantheon today. That building was a little under 500 years old when Paul was speaking there. I mean, this stuff is incredible. Temple dedicated to Nike. He's going, you got it all wrong. That's not how these things work. He goes on, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps fill their way towards him and find him. Now this is is brilliant right here. This is brilliant. Remember, there's Epicureans and there's Stoics and other people there and they're kind of challenging Paul. Paul has made a connection, gone in through the window, and now is going to confront in a very subtle and gentle but clear way their thinking. He says, verse 27, God God gave the boundaries so that people should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him. The Epicureans, what was their belief? The gods are far off, distant, detached. Don't bother trying to relate to them, to know them. They don't care about you. Live your life. Keep your head down. Be happy. Paul says, no, 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 no. God is not distant or detached. You should seek Him, and if you do, perhaps feel your way towards Him and find Him. See, the God revealed in Scripture is not distant and detached. The God According to Paul and the first followers of Jesus, this God knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your pain, your heartache, your trials. He knows your victories. He knows your triumphs. He knows it all. This God is not far and distant. He's near. Like the air in your lungs, he is close. And perhaps you too, Epicureans, may find him. I mean, this is... Awesome! This is like super brilliant, just kind of working the conversation. And what about the Stoics? All is God and God is all. There's one kind of, one substance that is all things. For Paul, he's, he's articulating something called creational monotheism. That's just a technical way of saying it's the belief that there's one God who creates the world distinct from him. So remember, they believe all is God and God is all, and Paul is saying, no, there's, there's this God, and he creates a world that's distinct from him. And perhaps you too, yes you, may find him. Now he quotes a couple sayings, some, some poets from his day, and they're not Christian, they're pagan. Line two and three that are separated in the quotes are the, the, the lines that Paul is quoting. So Paul says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us, In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For indeed, we are his offspring. That's a Greek third century poet, Erastus, who he's quoting. He's not quoting the Bible. He quotes a pagan poet. Why? It's like the, the poet's truth is accepted by the culture he's ministering to. So, he doesn't want to quote something from the Bible that they don't accept. He quotes something that they do accept. And then he stands on that belief and says, If you believe that, then this. It'd be the equivalent like if, you know, we um, tried to make a common ground by like a, a famous poet of our culture or a famous songwriter and said, They're not Christian or anything, but they're saying something that Christians affirm to be. To be true So I'll, like I'll give you an example um, And some of you probably won't know this I'm going to be surprised if the 30 and under crowd knows this I'll go the 40 and under crowd I'll say Look I don't know much about life I don't know about I don't got much figured out But I do know this It might be the devil Or it might be the Lord But you're going to have to serve somebody Okay you know it Raise your hand if you know it Only oh, like 30%. That's Bob Dylan, man. That's Bob Dylan. <laughs> Greatest songwriter, worst voice in human history. <laughs> That's Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan sounded like a first level reject from American Idol, man. That guy sounds bad. Bad. I know this is hurting some of your feelings, but he's a great songwriter, but that, that, that man sounded like he was dying. Uh, you young young folk, you can uh, Google him. They've up, they've uploaded his uh, ancient databases to YouTube. You can see him welling away. Um, you know, and you make that common ground. So what Paul does is he quotes the pagan poet, and says, "You believe this? Great. So do I. And if you believe that, then." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold, silver, or stone, an image formed by the art of the imagination of man. So if all of us are God's children, and somehow we are God's children, why then would we think that God is stone or rock when human beings who are the children are obviously greater than stone or rock? We've got it backwards. If you think somehow we're god's children why why would god's children then think a rock or stone is greater and worship that so you see that he he finds that common truth and he quotes it it's a famous line that like most people in the culture wouldn't disagree with and he builds upon that premise now this is the edge though this is this is where the twist is because paul has been bridge building you know He's, he said, "Look, the, God, the unknown God," and he's taking some light, gentle jabs at Epicureans and Stoics, and he's working his way, and and then now he's quoting Bob Dylan and the pagan poets, and then it's like, man, they're going to get along, but then to the point where the gospel offends, and the gospel always offends. The gospel always confronts, it confronts the powers, and it confronts the wickedness in your own heart. Here's the offense. Look, God created the world. We're like all of his children. He gave us different uh, times and places to live in. And we've all been reaching for God in our own wonderful ways. But the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all of us by raising him from the dead. So it's like, oh, you're good, the unknown God. You've been trying, you're doing your philosophy. Hey, good, I'm not, I'm not here necessarily to throw stones, all of that. But what I do want you to know is that God, who was once gracious in looking past that stuff, wants to do away with evil. He created the world. We were his children. We rebelled. And there's evil and suffering in the world. That's self-evident. Even in an amazing country like this, where we're protected from so much evil in the world, we can go around one by one and we can all share horror stories of pain and tragedy and hurt and abuse in our life. The world is evil and God has promised to destroy evil. He will destroy evil one day. And Paul says, when this God judges the world, the question will be, are, have you aligned yourself with his will or are you still doing your own thing? And the Jewish faith has always believed in a judgment day. The Stoics believed in eternal cycles. All is God, God is all, and there's no beginning and there's no end. And Paul is saying, no, no, there is a beginning, creation, and there is an end, the day of judgment. What Paul is now introducing is, we've always believed that there would come a day where God would judge the world, but now we know the name of the judge by whom he will judge. And his name is Jesus. And he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and he rose, resurrected, anastasis in power and glory and he will judge the world are you for him or are you against him what does the crowd do now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead some mocked but others said we will hear you again about this so paul went out from their midst but some men joined and believed among whom also were dionysius the areopagite and a woman named damaris and others with them So what happens when you share Jesus to, like, the philosophical elite? The majority of people are going to mock you. They're going to laugh at you. They're going to think you're stupid. Some people, because we're not that different than we were 2,000 years ago, will pretend to be, like, tolerant and interested. Uh, We'll hear more of this. And some of them might really want to hear more of this. But some of them will probably be like, we'll hear more of this. That guy's weird, man. He's weird, man. I don't want to talk to him. Block him. Unfollow him. Do whatever you can. Do whatever you can. That guy's weird. I don't like him. He's creepy. Most will reject. Some will believe. And it's not for you to determine who believes and who doesn't. That's not the work of human hands. You be faithful to share the good news, and you pray and trust God for the results. And so Luke, the person who wrote Acts writes the names of these two people, a man and a woman. By the way, when, when women changed religion or did something like this in the first century world, it wasn't noted in the text or the documents because women weren't treated as, as necessarily equal to men. So when Luke writes his, his account of the early church, he always includes the women. Just, this woman is just as important as, as the, man, the male convert. So what's the barrier in this situation? The people are like enlightened. They're the intellectual elite, the cool philosophy club that meets after school. And they've heard it all. They they have a rich tradition and history. This is Athens. This isn't just, Greece alone has a rich tradition of philosophy. This is Athens. Think Socrates, Aristotle, think Plato. Think this is who we are as people. We're the smartest and the brightest. And so oftentimes, though, we can develop, you know, like an intellectual snobbery, or we can just develop an idea that we have the world figured out. Oh, I know all that. You Christians are stupid. I've heard everything there is about Christianity. You're like, no, you don't even know what my, you don't even know what Christian, you don't even understand Jesus yet. And so what do you do to these people? What does Paul mirror for us or demonstrate for us? When Paul presents to this type of group of people, he presents a message that is gospel-centered and culturally subversive. What I mean by gospel-centered? The gospel is the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus. Paul does not preach a message that says, God loves you, God loves you, and has a wonderful plan for your life. God wants to be your friend. All of those things are true. God loves you. He's your friend, he's your king, yes. But his message is not about God in the abstract. His message is about the person of Jesus and what he did on humanity's behalf. So it's not like, who believes in God? It is, do you know the Jesus who was crucified and resurrected? You see that one God is like, in the, it's just general. Paul is centered on the gospel. I'm not just preaching to you about a God who loves you. I'm preaching to you about Christ crucified and resurrected centered on the gospel message two culturally subversive Paul sees the window they've left open to the unknown God and he says okay let me walk through that and then he sees sort of the culture's presuppositions he sees oh you believe this pagan poet you believe that so let me step on that truth and if you and I can agree to this truth then what about this because if you believe then this then what about this so he takes the culture's kind of truths that he can agree with, grabs a hold of them, and almost like a theological... Uh, what's the uh, martial artist where you use the oncoming to reverse a jiu-jitsu. He jitsu He will say theological jiu-jitsu and flips it and rotates it back. So you believe that. I feel that, and now let me turn it back to you. Now let me show you how this works today. Couple, just a couple quick examples. And I... This right here is one of the most important things. If you're going to be a Christian in our culture, you have to master what we're discussing. You have to master what we're talking about right now. What is culturally subversive, gospel-centered messaging looks like? Let's say you're talking to someone, and let's start with like super controversial stuff. We'll talk about sexism, racism, and classism. Sexism, racism, classism. And let's say you're talking with someone and they're like, yeah, I just don't like all the economic injustice in the world. We need more economic justice and we need more fairness and equality and we need to care about the poor. We have to care about the poor people. As a Christian, you could say, you value the poor. poor. That is great. As Christians, we value the poor. Jesus taught us to care for the poor, to love the poor. Jesus actually said, blessed are the poor. But you have this, and I know we share this, but you keep saying that like, the poor people matter and they have value. Where did you get the idea that poor people matter just as much as rich people? Where did you get the notion that someone who is poor is worth just as much as someone who is rich? Let me we say, well, everyone knows that. I mean, what? no, no, where did that come from? Where did that idea come from? Because you know, historically, nobody thought like that. Even the poor people didn't believe that. Most people historically Believed that poor people were less valuable than rich. There was the nobility. There was kings and queens. And a fair exchange would be the lives of 10,000 poor people for the life of, of the nobility. Where did you get the notion that someone who is poor is just as valuable as rich? Because throughout human history, no one thought that. Where did that come from? Where, where did you get the idea that someone has intrinsic value independent of their economic context. Or, or what about sexism? I, I, I hear you, I hear you passionate about women having equal rights and being treated just as equals as men. That's great. Like, Jesus models this in a time when it was, like, incredibly, like, risky to do that. He treats women radically different. But you keep talking about women's rights, women's rights. I, I'm not sure what you mean, because I, I know some of your background, but what, what do you mean by rights? Where, where do those rights come from? Where does a right come from? Oh, well, you know, our, we, we need to build a government that passes fair and just laws to ensure the rights of women. No, 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 Well a government can't do that because what happens when a different government comes in with a different set of values and thinks women don't have the same types of rights? And by the way, that's, that's very common in the world today. Where, where does someone get a right from? If it's from the government, law, or legislation, that can be changed. But you could say, no, no, if the government overturns equal rights, they're violating their rights. Why does a woman have the same value as a man? Where does she get rights from? Where does a man get rights from? Well, you know, uh, The the laws and the government figured, I mean, our government said that, you know, inalienable rights were given to us by God. Where does a right come from? Does government establish it? Does culture establish it? Because governments and cultures change. They change. Where does the right come from? If you remove the transcendent, You are a byproduct of random chance. Highly evolved mechanisms working together, but make no mistake about it, you are a byproduct of random chance. And why do you have inherent and innate value? Think about racism. Most people throughout human history believe their ethnic group was better than someone else's. Where do you get this idea that all human beings have not only inalienable rights, but that we're somehow created equal and every single human being, no matter male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, where do you get this idea that we all have equal value? You can't get it from government and you can't get it from culture. So I love that you care about the poor. I love that you care about women's issues. I love that you care about racial tensions. So do I. I just like to suggest that you don't have a grounding for your beliefs. You know they're right in your gut, and I suggest to you, you know it's right because your gut, because God put it there. And we can talk about something called natural law a little bit later, but but you know it in your gut, but why is it there? Why? You see how that worked? You're coming in and standing on something that you both hold to be true, and you're taking the next step. Another quick example people in our culture love to say that Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus is a great teacher. I love his teachings on women and poor and et cetera, et cetera. He's a great teacher. Um, oh, so are you a Christian? No, 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 because I don't like think he's God or anything. I just think he's a great teacher. You go, well, you know, Jesus also said, th- you know, Jesus said like before Abraham was, I am. That, that's a Jewish way of claiming to be God. Oh yeah, but I don't really believe that part. So you think Jesus is a good teacher but you don't believe believe he's God or can forgive sins or worthy to be worshipped. But you do realize that if someone is a good teacher, they wouldn't teach you lies about who God is, who can forgive sins, and who can be worshipped. Like, let's say I taught something good, but I also said I'm God and can forgive sins. I'm by definition not a good teacher. You can't get to pick and choose what parts of Jesus you like and don't. It doesn't work that way. So you could say, yeah, I think Jesus is a great teacher. I think he's the best teacher. And could it be that maybe the best moral teacher to ever walk the earth might have been more than just man? Culturally subversive. We all have to master that. Gospel-centered, culturally subversive messaging. Okay, lastly, and we're gonna close uh, with, a, with a story, a, a, a good one from a, someone who you think's a nice guy, but really not. Um, <laughs> before I do that, though, I want you to think in your head. Like right now, who, who are people that need to know about the good news of Jesus in your life? What he's done for you? I'm a pastor, I hear the stories. Know some of you were <laughs> horrible, miserable people. And Jesus changed you. Jesus got a hold of you, took away your anger, took away your hate, took away your shame, taught you about forgiveness. And maybe it didn't happen overnight, but slowly but surely, I've seen lives transformed. And we want other people to experience the goodness of God. So who are those people in your, in your mind? I want you to think about them right now. Who are people that, you, that man, I wish this person would, would hear Jesus out. And Lord, how can you use me in order to maybe show them the love of God that I know in Jesus? Just 10 seconds, think, think about it in your head. Who are they? Who are the people you want to show the love of God to? Maybe they're like the, the paralytic or the woman at the well or Nicodemus. Or the philosophers, who are they? Put them in your head and give them to God. Every week we've had someone share a story about what Jesus did in their life. And this week we're having uh, someone who I think is going to be good because, like, you see him and he does. He's, like, one of the nicest guys, coolest guys. And you wouldn't ever think that he'd have, like, this, this background story. Uh, but it's Drew Dowler who leads worship here every Sunday And that's a slow walk. Let me make it more awkward. Let me let me make it more awkward for you. Drew Dollar, man, this guy. No, I'm not going to do it. Come on up.
1: Let me. There we are. Let me first just say, I know there's a lot of people visiting here. Um, I'm not about to give a whole nother sermon. I know some of you are probably concerned because you have Mother's Day reservations at Mamma Mia or something. This is only going to be a a few minutes long. I'm I'm encouraged to share my testimony with you um, today because I don't know you guys, but I've been pretty encouraged by the testimonies that have been shared so far, and I completely believe um, that God uses the transforming power um, that he shows in one person's life to bring both believers and non-believers closer to him. And I pray that that's exactly what happens today. So I'll start by saying that church was a part of my childhood. I grew up going to Willow Glen Baptist Church with my family when we lived in San Jose. We moved to Morgan Hill when I was 11 years old, and we began attending Morgan Hill Presbyterian Church. I don't remember if we went every week, but I know that we went often. I sometimes went to youth group um, and during the week, and I sat with my dad on Sundays, um, in the morning of the service. I don't remember being very engaged. I remember being pretty bored actually. Um, when I think about how I could sit under the teaching of God's word week after week and somehow not be shaken by my need for Jesus, I'm reminded that it is not simply an issue of getting it. As 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us, the God, little g-God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What further heightened my disconnect was that in my family, church, uh, Jesus stayed at church, and that was separate from home. There was no talk of Jesus at my house. There's no example shown that Jesus uh, was of true value in day-to-day living. We didn't pray. I didn't read the Bible with my parents, and I don't think I ever remember seeing my parents read the Bible one time. I'd like to pause there just a second um, because of the weight of that. Um, As a parent of two in my house, I'd like to just remind everyone who has kids in their home, that what we show our kids day to day as far as what we value, the time that we spend in prayer, showing Jesus as a part of our lives, has a huge impact on our kids. As soon as I was given the choice to stop going to church, I stopped. I then, after graduated high school, began attending college. My second year of college, I moved in with a friend who had gotten a job in sales and spent his money on New cars, drugs, and strippers. He rented porn from the nearby video store for our house regularly. He weighed out and sold pot in our kitchen. And I joined him in many of these activities, and needless to say, it didn't do much for my quasi-religious upbringing or my academics. If you were here a couple weeks ago, you heard my wife give her testimony, and you may put together that this age, 18, 19, was when Lisa, my wife, and I dated the first time, but Because of my extreme selfishness, my relational immaturity, and my lack of moral standards, um, that relationship didn't go very far, and we broke up after a couple years. Three years in, I dropped out of school, big surprise, and decided to make a dramatic life change, and I moved to New York City. I was funded by my parents. I picked up and moved at the age of 21, taking only two suitcases and not knowing anyone where I was going. I worked in restaurants to support myself, and I quickly became cooler than I thought I could ever become. I hung out with cool people, and I saw all the coolest bands. I DJed in cool bars, and I ate at posh restaurants all over Manhattan. I'd come back to visit my family in California and seen my lame old friends who still lived in lame Morgan Hill. I thought, dang, I am so much cooler than you. It's ridiculous. But meanwhile, in New York, I had incredibly shallow friendships, I could not stay in a healthy relationship to save my life, and I valued the hipster lifestyle more than anything. In a petty attempt to give my life more meaning, I signed up for the Big Brother Big Sister program in New York City. And I was most likely a super disappointing big brother to a teenage kid who lived in Harlem. After a while, I realized that there were only two types of people in New York, those who jumped in the rat race to grind it out, and those of us who served them. And despite my self-assessed coolness, I was certainly in the latter category. Well, after saving a bunch of money, I decided again to make a change, and I traveled all over South America, and I moved to Buenos Aires, Argentina. But right before I moved, I randomly ran into Lisa at Starbucks in Morgan Hill. Now, I mention this now that we had a quick conversation because it'll come back in a moment. Once in Argentina, I immediately clicked with some locals my age, and I wanted to stay. I had meaningful friendships, and now bilingual and supporting myself in a foreign country, my coolness had more clout. Here I started trying new drugs, playing in a band, and stretching my sensory experiences further than ever. I was establishing my values, my ability to do whatever I wanted, with whom I wanted, where I wanted, good friends, good conversation, good food, good music, all the money I needed. I was international. My Argentinian accent was solid. But then came the twist. I visited California one summer, and guess who invited me to church? That's right, Lisa. She was a Christian now. Our brief run-in at Starbucks a couple years earlier had opened the door to a conversation about my travels, and Lisa, the natural evangelist that she is, decided to steer that conversation to God. I remember not wanting to go with her, but I was open. I thought I had figured everything out already. Now, as I mentioned, I had gone to hundreds of church services, but I remember sensing something very clearly from that Sunday, that there was something going on in that church with these Christians that rang truer than my normal experiences otherwise, and I was aware that I did not have that in my life. Nevertheless, the experience quickly faded as I prepared to head back to Argentina, ready to jump into a new band with a brand new keyboard that I bought for myself. I was excited, ready to see my friends, ready to get back to the life that I had made for myself. Something had happened, though, where I was now open to the possibility of a God who desired me and whom I supposedly needed. On the flight, I recall telling this possible God that if he had something to show me, well, I was ready to see it. As many of you know, it's a dangerous challenge to give to God. The week I got back, my friends decided to have an LSD party. We all dropped acid and went out for the night to a if-you're-in-the-know-you-know bar. I was where I wanted to be with the people I wanted to be with, doing what I wanted to do, full of pride in what I had created for myself, for the person I had become. And then at that bar, God did something incredible. He answered my challenge, but not in a way I would have thought, not by audibly speaking to me or showing me a miraculous sign or by bringing me to a point of utter desperation where I had nowhere else to turn. Instead, he simply had me look around to all the things I had built up and valued, and many of them were there with me in the bar. I looked around at all of those things, and I saw them all, and he, he, he took them down in one fell swoop. He showed me the, the emptiness, the valuelessness of all of those things, and after he showed me that, all of the idols in my life were empty. There was a big hole for me to fill in my heart and in my mind. So the next day, I got up and I started looking, but I didn't have to look very far because Lisa, before I had left, she gave me a Bible. She also gave me a Hillsong CD, but I didn't know who Hillsong was. I brought it with me, and I didn't think I was going to do much with either of those two things, but I put the CD in, and I listened to it, and I cried, hearing thousands of people sing to a God I didn't yet know, and somehow I still knew that it was real. I opened the Bible and I read the book of Matthew. I read of the person and work of Jesus and I was in awe. This wasn't empty. I could not think of someone more qualified for me to idolize. I called Lisa many times in the next couple weeks with many questions. And if you ask her, she'll probably tell you that I was more talkative in those several phone calls than I've been in our whole marriage. And she's probably right. (laughs) And after a good amount of wrestling for a few days, I took the leap and I gave my life to Christ in a prayer, with Lisa on the other end of the line. Now, I've shared this with you before from this stage, but the way that I knew that I had really changed, that I had been born again, that I had been transformed, was the next day I was sitting on a bus, as I traveled around the city typically, and I was sitting there, and all of a sudden I felt as if I didn't belong to myself anymore which is a really weird feeling because, A, I didn't really know that you could feel like you belonged to yourself, and B, though I didn't feel that way anymore, I felt like I belonged to someone else. I was okay with it. It was comforting. I had a friend there in Argentina who was a Christian that really helped and supported me as I faced one of the most difficult times of my life. I had to tell all of my friends that my old life was dead, that I was going to make decisions based on a man named Jesus, that I didn't want to hang out and drink and do drugs with them. That I still cared for them, but I seemingly disapproved of most of what they did and what they valued. I lost a lot of friends. Some friends thought I'd gone crazy. It wasn't my place anymore, and I needed to come home and start over, so I did. And that was about 10 years ago now. Well, something that may not be too surprising to you is that I started hanging out with Lisa soon after. And God blessed me more than I could have imagined with an incredible woman as a wife in Lisa. Lisa and I will both tell you that our marriage is only possible because of God in it. We were both a disaster before him, and it never would have worked. He continues to grow us. He holds us up. He is faithful to give us the grace that we need. I have two beautiful children. He took my wretched old life of selfish lies, of relational depravity, of empty pride, and he gave me this new wonderful life. And now I sing songs to Jesus. That's what I do. So I'll close uh, with this one point, if I may. Um, I was in a place where I knew that if I sought out Jesus, I would potentially have to give up a lot of the things that I had built up in my life. And I know that there are probably people in this room that are in that place, because I was in that place for a long time. I didn't want to be challenged by other ways. I had my own way. And i just like to tell you that when I hold up objectively my old life to the life that I have now, there's never a day where I look back and wish I hadn't made the decision that I made. But there are plenty of times when I look back and I think, man, I wasted a lot of time. I could have done that a lot earlier. So I encourage you, if that's where you are, that this is a very good decision to make. And I thank God that he allowed me to make that decision for myself. Thank you, guys.
0: I'm going to say, keep going. I don't want to be too close when I say this. Uh, thank you for your testimony, but uh, thank you for your service to this church, man. You're a gift. that you. You and your family are are a real gift to all of us, so thank you. Father God, we thank you for the lives changed in this room. We give you glory. You found us. You got a hold of us. You changed us. And may we just learn to, to love you and serve you more and more with every passing day. We give this day to you. It's a day that you have made. It is good, and you are good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.